The Rotocraft Collective Podcast, expanding Rotor and Wing International's coverage of vertical flight business intelligence. I am your host, Senior Managing Editor, Amy Kluber. Welcome to part two of the Rotocraft Business and Technology Summit recap. If you haven't checked out part one yet, go back to episode two and listen to that. We will continue now with the rest of the highlights. Day two started off with a panel discussing the state of the business as we've witnessed with a downturn in new helicopter sales caused by a number of factors, predominantly the oil market plunge. Speakers included Alex Youngs, VP of Strategy and Analysis at Vector Aerospace, BG Razor, Senior Vice President of Operations at Seven Bar Aviation, Alan Rowe, Co-Founder and Managing Director of Commercial at Waypoint Leasing, Don Roby, Training Program Manager at Airborne Law Enforcement Association, Imran Hyatt, Chief Compliance Officer and Chief Litigation Counsel at CHC Helicopter, and Les Clark, Manager of Data Analysis at Vector Aerospace. We heard a number of interesting points here. Clark made a point about other industries having an effect on this industry in the future, even if oil recovers. The demand of oil, he said, will continue to be impacted by the rise of electric and hybrid automobiles, for example. Hyatt noted CHC's own challenges. The operator had just emerged from U.S. Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection earlier this year. He discussed how the company rebranded and shifted its focus to other areas of the industry, like search and rescue and EMS. Similar with Waypoint, the lessor found value in leasing, being able to reposition or reconfigure aircraft to meet whatever demand. Then there's the whole uncertainty with the U.S.'s Affordable Care Act, putting much of operational growth on hold as the industry awaits that direction. And then drones, of course. If you haven't gotten caught up on episode one yet, you probably should. We spoke with assistant editor S.L. Fuller to get kind of the down low on that. We are increasingly taking notice of drones as they begin to fly alongside operators in various missions. Roby explained how there are 600 U.S. law enforcement agencies now incorporating drones in their ops. Let's listen to that discussion. Okay, so now is your opportunity. So if anybody has any questions, if uh, you could put your hand up and one of our glamorous assistants will bring the microphone to you. Well, that's just not truth in advertising <laughs> right there. <laughs> Well, I'm, hey, I insulted the boss. <laughs> Hi, good morning. Jafar Azri from uh, Safran Electronics and Defense. Question both um, Alan and, and Amran. Um, where do you see the next platforms? Um, uh, so you mentioned, Amran, that um, CHC is moving from two new platforms, uh, 189s, uh, 175s. And Alan, from a least, uh, lesser perspective, where do you see the market going when it comes to platforms? Um, DS-92s, um, Super Pumas, and the bottom of the, not the bottom, but the other end of the market that is being replaced by um, drones as far as applications. So where do you guys see the picture going as far as platforms? What are the next things that, uh, that will drive the market from an OEM perspective? Um, from our perspective, what we've seen is that there's, uh, and Alan and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, is the need for diversification in the industry, especially when you're looking at um, heavy aircraft, you've got two major types with, between the 225 and the S92. And I think, you know, more and more you're seeing that customers want diversification. And for us, it's fairly easy. We, we respond to what the customer needs and then, uh, you know, we build our, our bids around what the customer asks for. And then we, we go to people like Alan. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think from our perspective, what we're seeing globally 
is an increase uh, in interest in the super medium category. And if we look at when these super mediums were all kind of introduced, generally in the 2014-ish time frame, the, the 175 and the, and the 189, kind of a bad, you know, in retrospect, a really bad time to introduce a whole new asset class, you know, when, when you've got a damp, uh, you know, oil going to $29 a barrel. Um, but I think it's, there are two, two drivers we, we, we see where, that, that, are, that are helping the, the market acceptance of these super, the super mediums. Like one is the diversification um, with the grounding of the 225. Generally, operators have to rely on the 92, and so they want another type of aircraft. And I think second is cost. And so generally, you know, you'd have, uh, if you had a fleet operating he heavy aircraft and medium aircraft, you might have a heavy aircraft doing a job that, frankly, from a per-passenger uh, cost, is much would be much higher than it would need to be. And from you know, the, the, the big value that supermediums offer is a lower per-passenger cost for kind of the, the, the ranges that are just short of where, where a, a heavy is needed. Um, you know, you, you mentioned drones. We, you know, we, look, we, I think there's enough secular tailwinds here where we that's where the industry's headed, whether it's autonomous, um, uh, you know, autonomous, autonomous flight or uh, manned optional uh, flight. But generally where you've got large safety concerns, passenger transfer, search and rescue, I, I do not see drones in the short term taking over the, a well-trained pilot and crew. I think where we have seen some cannibalization um, is with, you know, pipeline surveys, things like that, where um, a drone does that job with a, with a sensor payload at a lower cost, just as easy as you can take a, a light single and, and fly and, and do a survey. Um, Hello, uh, Mark Cherry from River Flight Sciences. Uh, this question is, is probably for Iman. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on OEM consolidation. Uh, wouldn't you think that there's going to be consolidation across the industry from an OEM perspective? And is there room for new entrants like the Bell 525 in a already, call it flat to downish market? Well, I think that there's always room for new entrants, especially in a customer-driven market where the customer's needs are changing. And in a market where we're talking about the fundamentals changing, there's always going to be uh, potentially room for a new aircraft, especially when... Uh, cost is an issue. As far as OEM consolidation, um, you know, we're obviously, I, I, we work a lot with the OEMs, and I think that they have a really solid understanding of their business, and there's, there will certainly be opportunities there. It's just a matter of whether they choose to exercise them, especially when you see the, the broad range of diversity that they have within their fleets and uh, their ability to shut the valves, so to say, in, on production of one aircraft and focus on another more profitable aircraft. I, I think that's more likely what you'll see is a shift in focus on the aircraft they produce, and which may be in effect a functional consolidation with different players focusing on different types of aircraft. Any other questions? Oh, one in the middle. Good morning. Um, two questions. First of all, for the group, do you see the, uh, I see the oil and gas as being in a bad way for a long time for a lot of reasons, you may or may not agree, but the operator, the OEMs have put all their eggs in the basket of oil and gas. If you look at all the 175s and 189s and 139s, they were all built to, to service that market and they're not particularly good 
and working at utility work, too close to the ground, too small tires, too complicated. And that's why you've got like 7,000 mil 17s working in the rest of the world in Camoff 32s. Does the group see the OEMs perhaps backing up a little bit from oil and gas as the principal design parameter on helicopters and going to something that would be a little bit more usable elsewhere? And the second question to Don Roby, the recent uh, contract led by OAS with Crew Hall with a Blackhawk under public law. Can you comment about what you think is going on there, what you see as the future of that? I'm sorry, could you repeat it again? I'm sorry, could you repeat it again? <clears throat> Certainly, Don. OAS just led a contract uh, for Crew Hall with a Blackhawk, and there was an immediate objection by one of the operators. Do you, would you like to comment on that? Do you have any thoughts about where they're headed there? Not really on the fire spotting side, Lee, and uh, I'm not really familiar with that one. That's the first I've heard of it. Sorry about that. I think the, the question there primarily being the use of a restricted type aircraft. Okay. And, you know, for, for passenger carrying use, it was a very interesting development. I mean, normally from transportation, you know, from the base of operations to the fire scene was always a, a, a permitted on, by the FAA. Uh, they would be you know, non-essential crew members and permitted to do that. And, uh, and that was always the you know, position of the FAA. And, uh, and I still think that's part of the, that is legal under the public aircraft operations. Um, but I understand the reality of the operators that are operating certificated aircraft and you know, their position of making money, I understand that. But no, but generally, I mean, that's always been permitted. It's no different than us uh, transporting a SWAT team from you know, base of operations to a tactical operations and repelling them in. You know, they're not aviators, but they're essential or essential crew members for that mission. So that would be my response. You, you did have a question. Your first question was on OEMs and moving away from oil and gas. And I just, I thought it would be good to, to address that. So they're already doing that. I mean, I've walked the line in Milan at the Leonardo factory and you look how many oil and gas machines are lined up. They're, they're not that many. That's uh, a, a lot more. A lot of the OE, European OEMs have shifted their production away from commercial aircraft generally, and they're able to do that, to, to shift a, a 139 as an example to the military version of the 139. Um, we as Waypoint are doing some things with our older legacy modern technology aircraft like the 139 with our short nose. We have a, a medium, we call it the medium utility helicopter, the MUH, but it's a, it's a, a, a program we partnered with Eagle Copters in Calgary um, to, to, con to convert a, an older, you know, perfectly good 139s, but they're the, the short nose variants, into a utility aircraft. Now, is that going to be the best aircraft for every firefighting you know, operation or in, in the U.S.? Maybe not, but we're, we're getting a lot of traction in places like Spain, places in Latin America where you've got a high altitude environment, hot and high, um, and, and there's an, I think what we're seeing is industries outside of oil and gas are now demanding modern technology. Um, I mentioned, I may have mentioned before, but we've taken 225s and put those in humanitarian parapublic type <coughs> roles uh, in, in, in Africa. Um, so I, I think the, I, I, I will tell you, the OEMs are very attuned to this. They, they've been punched in the nose just like everybody else in the industry, and they are very focused on serving other segments of the market and, and I think those, those other segments are demanding the same technology that oil and gas wants, you know, with the drivers in. 
Um, Ken speaks with RMCI. Uh, Les, I appreciate your, uh, your comment and emphasis on the importance of homes, and Alan, your emphasis on technology improvements. Can you tell me what percentage of your fleet is full HUMS equipped now? And what would prevent you from being 100%? I don't have the figures. I think most of our heavier aircraft in oil and gas are all HUMS because they, they have to be. Uh, and I think the simple answer is cost. So if there can be a cost-effective HUMS-like product for lighter aircraft that are operating outside of oil and gas, I think it would be a great thing across everyone's fleets. But it's it can be expensive, and it can be you know under ultimately, um, we are supporting the operator who respond to their customers, and so if their customers require HUMS or the operator wants to have HUMS as part of their fleet plan, we're we're there with that. So affordable, lightweight. I think our customers would be very interested in that. Next panel is low-level infrastructure and vertical flight. Constant infrastructure improvements are crucial to maintaining safety and operations. The speakers here included Rex Alexander, Rune Duke, Director of Government Affairs of the AOPA, Cliff Johnson, Research Engineer and Unmanned Aircraft Systems Task Lead at the FAA Technical Center, and Jonathan Godfrey, CMO of LZ Control. We heard from Johnson, who shared the status of a voluntary FDM safety program with the FAA to share this data. He also elaborated on a U.S. helicopter safety team partnership to improve the current system of airports. That's the FAA airport master record 5010 that we all know of. And then there's LZ Control, perhaps a more immediate solution to the heliport database problems. It's a crowdsourcing app similar to what Waze is for car drivers. Moving along, we have the autonomy panel. We heard from Mike Hirschberg, Executive Director of American Helicopter Society International, Mark Cherry, the former president of Aurora Flight Sciences, as we know he is now with Boeing, Lane Merritt, Chief Engineer at the U.S. Army Aviation and Missile Research Development and Engineering Center, James Blind, Propulsion Engineer and Rotocraft UAS Focal at the Regulations and Policy Section at the Rotocraft Standards Branch at the FAA, and Michael McNair, Innovation Manager of Autonomy at Bell Helicopter. Seems like the sentiment in this panel is that trust will be an immediate and prolonged barrier to widespread adoption of this technology, but the panel urged the industry to exemplify such trust. Because there is some work we need to do before we get to a point where we are allowing autonomous vehicles to make decisions. As Merritt explained, unmanned and autonomous aircraft right now can't make their own decisions. They simply make recommendations, and you still have a human involved in the process of carrying that out. So the future will see a greater need for sensors, advanced ones at that. But because they're so expensive now, there will be yet another barrier to this tech. McNair said it best, when it comes to autonomy, it's really an interesting integration between people, manned platforms, and unmanned platforms. So now uh, we're going to open it up to the floor for questions. Um, I have a couple questions planned, uh, but... uh... I'd first like to survey the audience. Does anybody have any uh, questions? Um, so raise your hand. Uh, otherwise, I'll go ahead and ask the first question, and James, I'll ask this question uh, of you. Uh, so you know, Uber yesterday said that they that they have gotten gotten the green light for twenty part twenty three uh, for their electric VTOL. So what? I'm not uh, obviously not. Maybe this is, is not FAA policy, but what's your view on? 
uh, Part 23 for, for a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft? Um, traditionally, uh, the, the, well, at least the types of vehicles that Uber was presenting yesterday um, were traditionally considered power lift vehicles. Um, traditionally, those types of vehicles were considered special class and were usually handled under 2117B, similar to like the 609 is handled. So I don't really want to get into competition of 23, 27, or whatever. Um, the issue I think that they may run into, and, and I don't know where they got their information from. They said the FAA said this was possible. I don't know who the FAA is. I'm the FAA as well, but I don't know. Um, but in my opinion, I think there's risk in doing that because if you look at the applicability of 27 or of 23, it says normal category airplanes. If you look up the definition in, of what an airplane is per the FAA, it doesn't meet what a powered lift vehicle is. We do have a definition of what a powered lift vehicle is. So I don't know if they may run into issues um, from the legal framework as to whether or not you know they can get an exemption to the applicability. I don't know, but. If they would use the process of 2117B and they think that 23, the rules and regulations in 23 are most appropriate, that doesn't stop you from incorporating those into your 2117B approach. So I think there's a little bit of risk there trying to use it exactly as it is and vanilla straight out of the package. But um, I do agree that the, the, the use of 23 does open up um, some business cases for, for operators, especially since it's not as restrictive as the the older requirements, um, 27 obviously hasn't been updated that way. But anyways, I, I, I would just like them to uh, um, investigate, maybe using the special class, um, and just maybe keep their options open. All right, great. Uh, questions from the audience? Uh, yes, good morning. Actually, I have a question for James. Um, how closely are you coordinating that podcast with other Actually, the UAS uh, policy is actually ran out of the small airplane branch of policy and innovation. It used to be the small airplane directory. So they were given the, um, the job of creating UAS policy. So me being in the rotorcraft directory, now the rotorcraft branch of policy and innovation, I was essentially identified as the rotorcraft focal to coordinate with that branch. So I spend roughly half of my time working with the small airplane, airplane branch. Sorry, I meant uh, other non-US uh, Oh, oh, yes, like EASA and, and uh, whatnot. Yes. Yeah, actually, I serve on a JARS committee, which is the Joint Authorities for Rulemaking and Unmanned Systems. So, yeah, we're definitely involved with other authorities throughout the world. Um, we're working on regulations that we hope can be at least used or, or incorporated throughout the world, so that way manufacturers who meet the requirements in one country won't be hung out to dry when they go somewhere to try to either sell their wares or, or operate. So, yes, we are very involved throughout the world. Good. Okay. Next. All right. I'll ask a question to Lane. Uh, so, you talked about military uh, applications and military development of, of uh, autonomy. Um, how do you think? So, these are this is a business and technology summit. So, how do you think that's uh, uh, directly applicable to commercial operations and, and, op and operators? Sure. So, I mean, the fundamental technologies are the same. Uh, if you want to see in the dark, you got to have sensors that will see in the dark. And the, sometimes it's a matter of how much you can afford, and sometimes it's a matter of how specialized your activity or mission is. So I don't see any restriction um, in, until you get into classified uses, uh, but the general use cases are the same. Uh, several of the missions I... Um, I listed, aside from attack, are, uh, I think, completely attributable to uh, civil operations. Um, 
think many civil operators are going to be blowing things up. But uh, um, hopefully not. Yeah. So so I don't see uh, uh, any, any real restriction. Uh, dealing with the DoD is different in contracting ways, but uh, um, but we're all trying to do the same thing. So I, I think it matches pretty well. Okay. Great. Questions. I got lots of questions for these guys, but uh, was there? I'll ask one while I'm going over there. Where uh, you're all working on various focused aspects of autonomy, uh, looking at the big picture, where would you see the first breakthrough application in uh, commercial aviation? It, you know, just take put your prognostic hat on. And, where is that going to happen? Is it going to be Amazon delivering packages? Is it going to be what? Probably inspections would be my guess. I see the biggest move in inspections. I mean, they're they're out there ahead of everyone. They're a lower risk operation, so they'll probably be one of the first drivers. Is operations that involve inspecting power lines, train tracks, bridges. Yeah. So the military application of inspections is security. Uh, and reconnaissance. You're out there looking for things that you don't want to be there. And I know, and I'm, I'm always, I'm biased towards larger, towards large rotorcraft rather than uh, smaller UAS. But I, I would say that uh, Jim uh, uh, Sikorsky has looked at the the KMAX and and the, you know, the Blackhawk, uh, uh, but KMAX for like firefighting applications. Uh, so that's something where, you know, if you don't ha have eyes, you don't care about whether there's sun out there or not. So you can do firefighting uh, at night or day and night. And uh, especially if you can't keep drone operators away from uh, firefighters, if you can send in uh, uh, unmanned uh, rotorcraft to, to do uh, drops, um, then they, you're not as worried as much uh, about uh, accidents from un, uh, from uh, illegal drone operations. So that's another application of you know, maybe even, maybe not proven, but demonstrated technology where you could do firefighting, you know, today or in the very near term with unmanned, large unmanned aircraft. This is for the uh, entire panel. Um, how do you balance the desire for autonomy with the need for pilot proficiency, especially in legacy airframes which were designed for pilots? So that's a little bit of, uh, uh, I guess, looking at autonomy versus automation in that cockpit. Is that correct? Basically, how the more you take the pilot's job away, the worse they're going to get at their job. So in those points where then you need the pilot in the loop uh, and the pilot doesn't have the proficiency uh, to solve the problem necessarily. Uh, if you Sure. I see that's a, a, a grave danger. When we introduced GPS into the military fleet, we found ourselves programming even just getting out of Karen's Army Airfield in the local, you know, getting out of the airport area, um, the guys were programming all the little waypoints. And uh, we had to consciously draw ourselves back and to say, wow, I can't even make it six minutes without using the GPS. Um, and you have to continue with the pilot proficiency standards, and they're going to have to continue to demonstrate that they can do those things. I guess, uh, Mike, uh, for um, Bell Helicopter, and certainly, you know, you're looking at pretty much removing most of the cockpit for the FCX uh, kind, of, kind of vision. I guess, do you want to talk any more about, uh, or, or maybe uh, what the kinds of things you guys have done with the 525? Um, sure. You know, with, um, over time, Bell has had a, a history with, with unmanned aircraft. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see the progression of it. 
and how that's moved forward. You know, it's, it's gone from teleoperated platforms, um, including flight aids and, and navigation kinds of, kinds of uh, things back to a pilot. It's, um, it, and recently it's really moved into, and this is why our innovation team has been stood up, it's really moved into very targeted technologies. And uh, you know, when you're talking about the 525, when you're talking about the two, two, uh, 247 and, and other kinds of aircraft that uh, are fly-by-wire, it gives us an, a, a very clean option for putting in some kind of an autonomy system. Right? Um, having an applique type, type system with, that, that actually moves the, the wheel and, and works with the, the pedals, that is, that's, that's very useful and that we've got a legacy fleet out there that, that needs to be managed and you know, you don't necessarily need to get rid of. So being able to now with, with R&D and moving forward in the future, we have to be able to pull in additional technologies into, into our aircraft. And so speaking sort of holistically in big picture, it's, you know, you're always gonna have someone who wants to fly their, their little Cessna 152, right? You're always gonna have someone who just likes the feel of being up in the air. And so for me personally, I don't see pilots going away. It's, it's like people riding, driving their cars, right? Some people just like the open road, right? Um, but at the same time, investing in those technologies and those R&D options and infusing those into today's aircraft and future aircraft, like a 525, like a 247 and on, allows us to give an option now of is someone gonna actually be in the pilot seat or not? And with that option comes different uses and different use cases, right? If a pilot is not in the seat, well maybe you can invest, actually engage in more of the dull, dirty, and dangerous missions. You, and you, you understand the risk in a very different way. Great. Uh, and um, you know, we didn't, Thanks for bringing up fly-by-wire because we didn't actually talk about that in, in the panel, but obviously fly-by-wire, uh, with, with fly-by-wire systems, uh, it enables, uh, um, it enables more autonomy. Uh, and certainly for non-fly-by-wire systems, uh, things like Alias, uh, allows retrofitting of, uh, or flying federated and, and mechanical, uh, flight control systems. Uh, to be able to fly autonomously, and certainly things like sensors, the, the ACA sensor, to be able to land and do, uh, lot, there's been all the autonomy work uh, done in, up until a, you know, a couple years ago was all focused on up and away. So once you're flying, then you've got these autonomous systems. So when you can actually land, pick the best spot to land, and have a sensor that says, well, that's a bush, or that's a boulder, or that's a hole, uh, that's really where the, the um, I think autonomous landing, I think that can, can really pay a, a lot of dividends if you're doing cargo delivery or, uh, or um, uh, medevac uh, rescue on the highway. That's when it's really going to, um, I think, have paid dividends. So, well, you can even dub that, dovetail that into like an emergency situation where sure. pilots may not be as proficient with doing an auto rotation, but if you have a system that hops in and takes care of it for them, I mean, you could save a lot of lives. Correct. Yeah, and I would say in addition to that, uh, from a mission standpoint, one thing that we're excited about actually is the ability to disrupt the OEMs specifically. Because traditionally, if you're going to get into the inner loops, you have to get into the flight control system cells, you're going to need some support from the OEM to do that. But if you can stay outside of that, 
then you essentially have the ability to provide the capability without needing to go back to you know, your friends at Bell or Sikorsky or Airbus or Leonardo, and you can effectively provide the same capability without needing to go there, thereby reducing overall costs. In our lunch keynote, Building Urban Mobility, Uma Subramanian from Airbus subsidiary Voom provided an overview of its concept of urban air mobility to ease congestion in the world's megacities. As you know, Voom launched an experimental helicopter ride-sharing project in Sao Paulo, Brazil in April. After her keynote, former editor-in-chief Jim McKenna exchanged questions with her. I'd like to play that now in its entirety. There we go. Okay, so I'm going to pull, Uma and I are going to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, and I'm going to interview her uh, about what she's been up to with Voom, and then we will open it up to uh, your questions from the floor. Uh, you mentioned the uh, brand trust mm -hmm. and awareness. Uh, I wonder if uh, you could discuss what the role of Airbus's previous operations in Brazil and its Helibras subsidiary down there, which plays a Big huge role. role in the market, has played in uh, easing the introduction of Voom. Yeah, so Voom is um, an initiative that spun out of A-cubed, Airbus's Silicon Valley incubator. We started as a project looking at uh, urban mobility, and it's now become a business. Uh, but we couldn't have done anything. On the mic. Oh, sorry. Uh, we could not have become anything without the support of Airbus and, and Halibras. Uh, they've been great about introducing us to the best-in-class Part 135 operators, and they've really been instrumental in opening the doors uh, from a regulatory point of view. Uh, there's been a, Other people have tried this before, but without the regulatory um, heft, it's really difficult to make sure that this, that this thing is viable for the long term. Okay. Do you have a sense of what the uh, projected... A utilization improvement might be for the operator. I gather that you're basing it on existing operators uh, in the uh, areas that you're targeting for VOOM development. So what's the payoff for the operator? Uh, so right now we are talking to operators about delivering twice their annual flight hours, um, and that is not at scale. So at scale, we believe we can reach the effective utilization of the aircraft, um, 1,600 to 2,000 hours a year. Okay. And... Uh, have you identified what additional markets will look like, not necessarily in terms of names, but uh, population density, geographic spread of, uh, of the uh, metroplex area? Uh, yeah, so um, we know, so we launched in Sao Paulo uh, for a reason. Uh, very few people in Sao Paulo are likely to complain about noise, um, and we are... Also, we, so while the U.S. is really interesting, um, the kind of public acceptance hurdles that, that Mark talks about with noise are real. Um, and so our focus is to get as much information as quickly as possible. And so we are prioritizing uh, large emerging market cities where this is actually a real problem. So densely populated urban environments that, um, that really have transportation challenges. So you can imagine what those large, densely populated, congested metros are. Is there a, a population baseline that you're looking at? Or? Not really. It's, uh, but these are usually megacities. Okay. So. And uh, talk a little bit about the work with um, uh, ANAC in, in Brazil and what else 
uh, you are doing to um, establish dialogue with other, other regulators? Yeah, so we in Brazil, we've met with ANAC and we've met with, with DASEA, which is the air traffic control. Uh, and it's more of a, so everything we are doing is within the uh, confines of an existing uh, RBAC 135 certificate equivalent to the Part 135. So we're not asking for additional permission, but we're making sure that the regulator is fully informed and that we have an open dialogue and we're telling them about our flight plans and we're making sure that we're compliant with all of their existing regulations, recognizing that for this eVTOL ecosystem to happen, there will need to be regulatory evolution, but our plan is to work with these regulators. Um, thanks to Airbus Helicopters in Mexico, we've met with Senayam and we've met with um, the DGAC in, in Mexico and there and we understand what their basic concerns are and how to think about this in an, in an existing way. What would you say are the biggest surprises of your work down in uh, Sao Paulo? Um, the biggest surprises of the, of, of the service today? Yes. People really love this service. So we're using kind of classic e-commerce, whoops, sorry. <laughs> we're using classic e-commerce metrics for measuring um, satisfaction, and what we're finding is that our NPS scores are through the roof. Um, and we're finding that people really love this experience, but there is a high hurdle to get them to convert. So people are scared of helicopter flight today. Uh, and that's real, and we, we get a lot of feedback from people that's like, wow, this is really cool, I'd never get in a helicopter. Even um, one of the very senior execs at LATAM told us that she absolutely hates helicopters, and we're like, that's, that's a problem, your work in aviation. And that kind, of, that kind of getting people over the hurdle to think about helicopters as a more, uh, integrated part of their transportation system has been very interesting. Okay. Do we have any questions from the floor? I've got a bunch in my head, but uh, I want to give you all a chance to uh, pick Uma's brains a bit. Yes, Mark. <laughs> if I could ask you to wait for the mic and so everyone can capture the question. Um, in, in Brazil, the, the controllers are, are military personnel. So I'm wondering, um, how are you overcoming um, dealing with the military directly to try to expand these flights, and is that a significant inhibitor? Because um, you know, ANAC is is uh, not fully um, in control of the system. Right. So I'm just I'm, I'm wondering, do you see a, a vibrant path of cooperation? Um, with the military um, in Sao Paulo? So we've met with uh, DASEA both in Sao Paulo and also with the Brigadier that runs DASEA out of Rio. And they are really forward thinking. So they're, they're sort of fundamentally citizens too. And they're very excited about this um, as an offering. And currently we comply with all of their regulations. So we never have more than six birds in the sky at any one time. Uh, but our hope, and, and they understand that they are willing to explore other types of technologies. So if we come to them and say, hey, we've got a plan for helping you with deconfliction uh, in, this, in this urban environment. So right now, they've limited it to six aircraft within a six kilometer radius of Congonias. And so if we come to them, we say, hey, this technology will enable you to manage it better, and we can run it in parallel with your existing services and prove it to them, they're open. What is there, um, oh. I believe you're working with a ground transportation partner as part of the project. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, at VOOM, we are, 
our goal is to get as much data as quickly as possible. Um, and we are open to having conversations. So we're not, we may or may not uh, be brand building for the long term. And so we are working with people that have access to large, um, large rider bases today. Uh, and so we are, we are working with them and they're offering Voom as a service that's complementary to their ground transport offering. Okay. Is there a, an interim, you talked about the, uh, the aircraft uh, configuration. Is there an interim step between the current fleet out there and uh, City Airbus? So City Airbus is optionally piloted, um, and I actually think that kind of configuration makes a lot of sense. I do think my personal view is that I think we're going to get electrification before we get autonomy uh, from a certification point of view. And so I think vehicles that have a pilot in the loop are going to be the next kind of iterative step. Okay. And as to what that configuration looks like and what the design point looks like, it still remains to be seen. I get asked a lot about vehicle configuration specifically. Should it be two-person medium range? Should it be four-person? Uh, short haul, like what is the optimal vehicle configuration? And the answer is we don't know. And before we make a billion dollar bet, let's at least get the data to figure out what we, what we think it should be like. And so that's, that's the hope. Okay. And do you um, pursue a service, uh, do you continue to pursue the service as you collect the data and try and generate some revenue in, in, through that research project? So we know, um, as I said, that most helicopters, uh, a very, very large percentage of their costs are fixed. So the more you fly, the cheaper it gets. So the economics close, and uh, particularly with the smaller aircraft, the economics close on offering the service at prices via passengers are willing to pay. Um, the margin, it's not a huge margin business. You're still providing a service basically slightly above cost, but at a margin that makes operators comfortable. Um, and we want, so our goal with this is to make sure that the operators capture the value because the operators at the end of the day are our customers. And so we are trying to make sure that, um, we're trying to create an ecosystem that closes, that where operators get value and where um, we're able to offer something at a competitive price for passengers. Okay. Another question from the floor, perhaps. You're bashful today. I'm a bit surprised at that. The, uh, what's, what's the next, what are the next steps for Voom? Uh, so for Voom right now, we are um, looking at our next markets to launch. Uh, we will likely, our plan today is to roll out across Latin America um, and then into South and Southeast Asia. So that's what we hope to be doing over the course of the next six to 12 months. Okay. And uh, do you see Voom driving up the demand for Airbus helicopters? For Airbus helicopters, we certainly hope so. Okay. Right, Sebastian? <laughs> 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 no, but our, our view on this is um, is that there are, uh, when, I, when we looked at this about six months ago, there were 1,600 aircraft for sale in the secondary market, just across platforms. And that's a problem. There's tons of spare capacity, right? And the truth is the economics in this business work with secondhand aircraft better than they work with new aircraft. So our hope with, with Boom is to create liquidity in the secondhand market, move some aircraft, get, get the market going again while... Um, and which will enable all OEMs to create work. So that's that's our that's our hope. We just like let's just get the ecosystem going again with a different use case. Okay. Um, the uh, a question from the floor. I'm checking every now and then. Okay, Mark. <laughs> the guy in the back too. 
And a man, and uh, Tom in the back. Yeah, Umino is. I'll just keep asking questions as long as there's an opportunity. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, when we did Uber Jopper and we, we did it collaboratively, I mean, we found such a huge demand that uh, we simply couldn't satisfy it, which is the reason why we stopped doing Uber Chopper experiments because the last thing you want is disenfranchised customers who want to take these trips but then can't. Are, are you finding a, I mean, I know you said that the, the satisfaction was very high um, in the actual, I guess, experience or perceived experience, but, you know, in terms of being able to have access especially when the number of flights are relatively small uh, currently, is that, uh, are the customers discouraged because they're not able to get access? Um, and um, as you spool up, are you going to be able to, to, to fix that? Yeah, so this is a classic marketplace problem. Uh, immediately before this job, uh, I ran European operations for a home services marketplace uh, called TaskRabbit. Uh, which is a bit of a detour from my aerospace career. Uh, but the, oh, sorry, uh, bad habit, I'll put these down. Uh, so the, um, the classic supply marketplace problem is scaling supply and demand in line. Uh, we know that there are a bunch of other helicopters in Sao Paulo that could satisfy this demand. When we, when we ran the trial last summer, we had access to only four helicopters uh, and millions of users worth of demand. So we, the, the, the uh, marketplace was out of balance which is why we've taken a much more slow and steady approach to scaling the marketplace, because we know that in Brazil it takes six to 12 months to add um, an aircraft to a Part 135 ticket. And so what we're talking to the regulator about is moving that process along more quickly, but also getting a bunch of these um, big companies who have a lot of aircraft, a lot of small aircraft, uh, onto these Part tickets. And so that's what we're working on scaling them together as opposed to dropping a lot of demand at it. Um, before we can supply, before we can satisfy it. Okay. Uh, we yeah. have, yep. Tom, go ahead. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, ground supporting uh, infrastructure and network services and things? I mean, how do you uh, try to keep your vehicles on, on schedule? You said schedule is real important and not exceed capacity if, if other vehicles are flying in the same airspace and kind of what, what you're using to do those kinds of things? Yeah, so right now it's a really symbiotic relationship with the regulator. So um, in Sao Paulo, every so they actually don't have to file flight plans anymore, but they still have to radio to DSEA. And so we are not, by virtue of the fact that we are a technology platform provider, uh, not in the aircraft operation. So full operational control of the aircraft is maintained by the operator, and we are just the dispatch network. Um, and so we've, got, we've built a bunch of technologies on the back end that enable us to schedule flights and have full visibility as to where these aircraft are. Um, and then I think somebody yesterday was talking about GPS versus, uh, versus kind of radio systems. We're actually really looking at that as an option to know exactly where the helicopter is when it, and, and what time it's going to land. Um, but it is a very manual process today um, with the radioing of the, of the uh, radioing back to DSEA and then also managing it on the back end. Um, also on the ground infrastructure, the helipads, in Sao Paulo they've been in this game for a long time and so they're very accustomed to high frequency uh, landings. So they give, you, they give us a window, uh, plus or minus five minutes when we can land. Okay, another question? The, uh, let me ask the attendees, show of hands, how many 
are regular users of a rideshare service like Uber or Lyft. Okay, that's a, that's a good percentage. Um, I'm curious, uh, there's a certain variability of quality of service that the, that the passenger is willing to accept, which is, it can be hit or miss. You, get, you can get a good driver, very knowledgeable, uh, knows the routes, um, knows how to read the app. And then, as we experienced last night, uh, uh, and it was a good, good uh, contrast, because we had a group split in two. One got a very good driver, and <laughs> the other group had three shots and still didn't get a good driver. The, the name of the service is irrelevant because I, my experience has been it's a problem with uh, you know, the quality of service, the consistency of service um, uh, varies widely, uh, even with the rating systems. Uh, but uh, does that problem not rear its head when you're involved in aviation, is there a certain level of quality of service and consistency of service that you can expect if you're dealing with an aviation operator? So uh, we only work with licensed Part 135 operators. In Sao Paulo, there is a culture of these piratas, the pirate, uh, pirate operators who have a Part 91 ticket and just kind of do, do this on the side. We do explicitly do not work with them because okay. we are working with we are really keen to comply with all regulations and also make sure that uh, the service is reliable. And we, we, you know, these operators have been recommended to us by Airbus helicopters. We know that they, like, we've checked all their maintenance records. We know that they're doing what they need to be doing because that variability, if, if anyone has an accident in the next five years in this space, it's going to really cramp uh, this industry's ability to grow. So we are really keen to make sure that the service is um, consistent and reliable and above all safe. Anyone from the floor? That leads into my next question, which is how do you overcome public reluctance to fly in helicopters? How do you address that safety hesitancy that's out there in the public? Uh, that's tough. I think um, that's just going to have to be word of mouth where people are like, no, you have, or, or just kind of like forcing people to do it by their friends or peer pressure or whatever. I think really, because um, the psyche of why people are afraid to fly is like runs fairly deep. And so there's a cadre of people who are not affected by it and a cadre of people who are. And our goal is to get all the people who don't, who aren't afraid to fly first and then bring these other people along. Okay, that seems like a prudent course. <laughs> the other uh, aspect of the Sao Paulo market is you have that underlying personal safety concern, not about flying, but about getting kidnapped or yeah. getting, uh, becoming a victim of crime, which is why a lot of people fly helicopters rather than put themselves in a, in a chauffeured car on the road. Um, so uh, I imagine that has helped a great bit in, in laying the foundation. For Sao Paulo, it gets a bad rap. It's actually, every time I land there, my mother's like, oh, be careful. I'm like, Sao Paulo's a bit like LA in the 80s. It's, it's pretty, it feels pretty safe whenever I'm down there. Uh, but that has helped. So Sao Paulo has a culture of urban air travel already. So we're not radically changing behavior. What we're doing is we're, start, we're showing people that it can be accessible at a price that they can afford to pay. Uh, it's not 
wildly different or wildly novel to them in the way that it is in other markets okay. around the world. So, we've, so they're accustomed to it. Mark's an itching to ask a question. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, are you going to publish a report or share the data uh, in any way? Uh, that I don't know actually. I, and that is a question for internal debate at Airbus, I suspect. And we've got a question from Lee Benson. Has anybody ever asked the question of the public if they would feel more confident in an autonomous vehicle versus a piloted one? It may seem like a really stupid question in this room because we're all pilots or a lot of us, but maybe the public would accept that. They've been around computers all their life. I mean, you know. We have not explicitly hair. asked that question. Um, it's a bit like the iPad. I think people don't really know that they want it until it's available, um, and so I don't know like, if we theoretically offer it to them, uh, w whether or not they'd be receptive. So we, we've asked that question. They're not ready. They're not ready. Okay. <laughs> the, um, you've, you've looked extensively at, at the business model and the potential for it. What is the impact of security requirements on the uh, business model? Getting in an aircraft is different from getting in a what's essentially a uh, cab on the road. Yeah, so that's uh, so security is interesting. So again, we are not the operator, uh, so that's really important. So it is at the operator's discretion whether or not they choose to fly particular passengers. Um, in Brazil, the the rules are that. You have to collect every passenger's um, weight information and also collect their passport information. Uh, so, the, so ANAC has a, reg has a record of it. Um, we do that, and the regulations vary by market. But currently, on a part when, when you're doing Part 135 operations, you don't have to offer airport-style security. Uh, it is something we think about and we kind of noodle on, which is like, how do you how do you ensure the safest ecosystem? And the conclusion um, we've come to is that it needs to be at the operator's discretion. Okay. So is, is it not appear to be a hurdle to the development of the business model, or is it TBD? TBD. Okay. Very good. Any other questions from you folks? Uh, if not, if you would uh, join me in thanking Uma very much for the presentation. Thank you very much. And, and also for Airbus's sponsorship of the summit. Thank you for that as well. And uh, great. Next, we have the Tapping Big Data for Efficiency and Safety panel. This panel explored the benefits of FDM and hubs. The speakers included Brian Tucker, Associate Technical Fellow of Integrated Vehicle Health Management at Bell Helicopter, Josh Malin, Senior Product Line Manager of HUMS at Honeywell Aerospace, Dennis Dunaway, VP at PeopleTech Inc., and Bjorn Stickling, Manager of Diagnostics, Prognostics, and Engine Health Management at Pratt & Whitney Canada. This panel explored the benefits that such data collecting tools provide, especially when combined to create a comprehensive management system to get ahead of any failures or maintenance needs before they become problems. Malin noted how the International Air Transport Association estimates predictive maintenance can drive a 30% increase in aircraft availability. In the case of Pratt & Whitney Canada, whose engine health management system is in place on more than 18,000 of its engines, it uses a multitude of collected data to apply efforts like prognostic modeling, maintenance credit approvals, useful life detection, and more. Then the interesting note, again, concerns trust. Many concerned with collecting and using this data is that it can be identifying and be used in a punitive manner. But as Tucker noted, the industry should agree to not use it as such, since the value of safety far exceeds that. 
I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Uh, Y'all can give some thought to the ones that you have. The capabilities that you're developing now, that you're applying now, how retrofitable are they? Where is the line between, you know what, that aircraft's been in service 10 years, the engine's been in service 10 years, you know, all that stuff is hardwired, we can't go back in and, and wire in the sensors that we need. Is there a defined line at that point where, uh, where you say, no, it's gonna, a lot of the stuff's gonna apply to new products, or, or can it be retrofitted? I'll, I'll take a stab at that. So our, our specific solutions, because we have a range of aircraft of aviation, we set ourselves a target that really, it has to be retrofitable on every platform with, within 50 man hours. So every STC that we do, that is our target. Now in some cases we have major modifications where we're adding additional sensors uh, and the like, it's a little bit longer than that. But really the platform is designed to be installed on, on helicopters, on the fixed wing in, in 50 hours or less man hours. Okay. Anyone else on that point there? I think what uh, we've done is put a product that would sit on top of whatever sensors or whatever we get, get out. So we want to exploit the data that's coming off. So if there's a choice by the customer to put a new system on, uh, in the case of the Airbnb, there's three logbook systems that are going around. We have to consume data from all three of them, multiple financial systems. Uh, logistic systems and other things. So it's really sort of the next level, which says, can I sit on top of it? Can I host OEM algorithms that can provide value back? That might be uh, a partnership and, uh, and then bring value and decisions at the right place for their organization. Okay. Yeah, I, I think from a technical feasibility perspective, um, there, there's certainly a lot you can do, but on older platforms, I mean, I think Look at what we've done on on hums for 412s, all models of 412s, as well as even 212s. So you could go out today and, and get those capabilities to put that on there. They're not quite as advanced as what we have on a 429 or a newer 412 EPI, but you get quite a bit of the health monitoring that you can get on the newer aircraft. But the other thing that we do see, and I think it, it does it does end up being a matter of what's the value. And um, because the value proposition on an older aircraft is going to be a little different than a newer one, um, what you might be willing to pay to add something on a new aircraft to get some capability in a, in a kit, for example, as most of these are, we're starting to get to the, to the era where, where the monitoring systems on the new aircraft are standard equipment. But when we talk about retrofitting, uh, the business case gets to be a little bit difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons, too, we don't see a whole lot of, uh, we don't see as much uh, monitoring one the smaller aircraft as we do the large ones, as all as well as some of the the customer requirements that come with the larger aircraft, specifically in the OGP market. Okay, the uh, Dennis, uh, you mentioned the one sixtieth. Uh, Army's been uh, mulling the question of hums for ten years more. I'm not sure if they've actually ever achieve the payoff that they were looking for uh, with the Blackhawk fleet, for instance. Uh, 160th, uh, in uh, fairly large fleet, intense operational tempo, going on 16 years now, relentless operational tempo, it's not going away. Uh, those aircraft have to fly when the, the mission needs to be executed. Uh, they would seem to be a natural fit for buying into the value proposition. 
of this kind of uh, prognostic, predictive, uh, analytic uh, capability. Where is the rest of the operator community in slices, if you could? I mean, who who is close to buying into this stuff? Who really is not interested in it and won't be for a long while? Uh, from my perspective, in the in the military market, I think they've all uh, bought in to a system. From they were given choices to pick and choose their own system. So there's several different systems that are out there. The 160th chose to have a single system from a single vendor to help solve logistical problems. They didn't want to have to train uh, folks when they are fighting a force of, of three different aircraft around the world. Um, so that sort of helped them to maintain. The others, uh, most of the, I haven't seen the latest numbers, but the, most of the fleet has systems installed. Um, uh, some of the financial constraints that have come from sequestration have caused them to rethink how much uh, back-end support do I really need from uh, having a system and how much monitoring do I need and then sort of making it happen. So you really want the system in the end, the ultimate system, just tell the user what to do. And so lots of efforts been done to, you know, what are the the right diagnostics, what do you show the user, and then is that really what, I think there was, there was a lot of uh, briefings early on from some folks that thought that you could do a lot more than you're currently doing with it, but there's a lot of value to what you're currently doing, and they've seen that um, with decreased maintenance test flight times, uh, bringing back, I think the, there was some analysis at the 1-6, they, they, they can bring another aircraft to the fight because they have the system and the efficiencies from that. So it is basically adding another aircraft to the fight that they wouldn't have. So whatever the cost of that platform would be, then that's the value that they perceive each year that they gain. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about uh, on the civil side, gentlemen? Is uh, the, uh, the predicament in the offshore market making uh, offshore operators more intently focused on managing maintenance costs and reliability, uh, EMS, uh, air ambulance, uh, which are the, which are the uh, mission areas that are most amenable to uh, this uh, analytic capability? A little bit on our side, we've seen a pull from both of those sides, uh, you know, the EMS side, uh, because of uh, safety factors. You know, there was uh, one incident in Canada not too long ago, and as a result, uh, you know, the particular operator has really uh, stepped up the amount of uh, hums and analysis and FDM analysis that they do. Uh, so we saw quite a bit of pull on that in the analytics and, and now how they can try to integrate that and know the, the health of their power plants at any one time. Um, on, certainly on the oil and gas, uh, much more price sensitivity, I think, on the initial uh, and any kind of services tools. Right? So they're, I think they're trying, uh, our perceptions are trying, most of them are trying to make do with what they have. Um, and then using internal resources as best they can. But we see uh, spots uh, where there's a different approach to it and they really want to try to optimize uh, and, and have a more analytic approach to it and how they get the most out of their power plants. Okay. Josh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think kind of building on everything that's been said, I think one area that we'd all agree has been an area of challenge, I think, is how you make the economics for HUMS and flight data monitoring and and analytics work for um, operators of smaller helicopters. Um, and I think it really does come down to the economics. So I think that's kind of the fundamental area where we have to focus is, 
got to kind of think of it in three ways when you bring value to a maybe a smaller operator who maybe even be operating smaller helicopters um, would be kind of number one, keep it simple. So one thing we've heard from customers uh, that have fleet sizes of five or less is you need the data in a way that doesn't take training a HUMS analyst for years or months, but something that if somebody's wearing multiple hats, they can quickly understand and digest the data. Um, I think the other thing that's important is um, when you look at operators of smaller fleets is uh, there's a lot of interest in being able to learn from other people's data. And so I, Brian talked about data sharing and the importance of that. That becomes really critical when you only have a few aircraft because unlike a larger operator, you can't look at uh, a, a wide variety of tails on the same platform and learn from trends and kind of is this one normal or abnormal. And so there's value in folks that can, like a Honeywell or a Bell or somebody who can look across those fleets and provide some level of data um, uh, while providing you know, adequate protections for each customer. Um, and then the third thing is obviously the economics, right? You have, we have to find a way to get a less expensive option, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of us are committed to doing that. Okay. Any questions from the floor? Lane, uh, if you'd wait for the mic, we'll... So Brian, you almost answered this question. How do you see the data analytics relating to the actual design of the aircraft? And what I mean is, what are the challenging with existing designs, and what are the opportunities for uh, new design aircraft? So I think there's a couple of different levels, so thanks for the question. Um, on one level, one of the easier things to do is try to refine uh, the design data that goes into the assumptions for structural design. So structural design criteria, so includes basic assumptions about number of low cycle fatigue events like takeoffs and landings per flight hour, uh, as well as uh, our, our usage spectrum, which says I'm gonna spend X percent of my time doing this particular type of maneuver. Those things are uh, tend to drive damage and therefore maintenance life. And oftentimes we design to what we perceive as a worst case. And we have these anecdotal stories and the problem with a worst case, and you know, we're, we're trying to fit to what we see in the, in, the, uh, in the FAA guidance material and others, which says you have to design to usage as severe as expected in service. So those are the words. Well, what's expected and what anecdotal stories we've heard may not always be the same. Uh, because it's always very easy to say, well, what if somebody does, and what if somebody does? And over the years, I think there's been a creep of conservatism that has accounted for some scenarios that I think are, are very, very extreme, or things that can't happen for a very long period of time. Um, and so at one level, we can, we can inject realism into this is data, not just somebody's worst case story, that says this is how aircraft are being operated. So that's, that's at one level. That's still designing the aircraft the way that we do today. I think at the other level, and, and I'm sure to your point as we look on to FVL, uh, our, our fundamental design philosophy for the aircraft can be different. We can, using a risk-based approach, change how we design the aircraft to take advantage of the fact that I'm not just looking at it once uh, every X hundred hours, now I'm now the system is monitoring it on a regular basis. And so if I want to manage the risk, can I can I take things like the 1.5 safety factor that we've said, well, it's got to be that? Because that's big. Why is it 1.5? Because we it was a good guess and we didn't know better, and so we're gonna make it that big. 
you know, if we know better, does it have to be 1.5? And that's, I'm, I'm sure, you know, that's not, uh, that's not something that just Bell Helicopter said. The industry is starting to change, and I think FVL is going to be uh, the place where we see a lot of that push. Okay. Another question. Ken? Panel to me is what are we going to do with all that data and, and what benefit? Uh, we, uh, with already designed aircraft, we have a really hard time changing time bef before overhaul or uh, phase times. It, it literally takes years worth of data collection to convince the airworthiness authority you can make the change. Um, I think we can design our future aircraft not only for regime recognition, but to con use the flight control system to control the usage. Don't let the pilots break it, okay? Um, some pilots will say, you must let me break it. Uh, but uh, if you look at an F-16, you cannot over-G the aircraft. The flight control system will not let you. Okay, And uh, the, the challenge there is being predictive enough to start pulling back before the pilot realizes he has to, uh, so as you don't crash on the ground. So um, we still have a challenge. Uh, there's, there's still a lot of people in the Army that don't believe that the, the whole CBM concept ever uh, uh, reached its promise, and I tend to agree. I think we have some work to do, um, but I am glad that we're collecting the data that we need as evidence on our existing platforms. Lee? I've got a quick question. Um, relative to the data, how long do you keep the data, how you protect the data, and is there any incremental liability that comes to you, to the operators, on the fact that you have data that you may or may not share information that could lead to something. I can talk to that a little bit. On the uh, FDM side, so on the aircraft data, we only keep it for 15 days. Uh, so we transport it to the customer and just keep it for 15 days just to make sure the transmission was good. So on the whole aircraft data, we, we don't keep it. On the engine side, we do keep it for the, for the entirety, and it is a part of the record that we maintain. Um, so we had lots of internal soul searching with legal on this exact topic with our DAs. But in the end, uh, we carry the liability in many cases anyways, because we either carry warranty or we carry power by the hour program or we, carry, or we stand behind it. If it's a real technical problem, we're going to stand behind it anyways. So uh, except now you can actually try to do something about it and manage it, and, and you can use it and learn from it. And I think in general that certainly has won out uh, between the two. Uh, you know, I've, we're getting no more pushback now internally to maintain that engine data. And I'll, I'll agree with Bjorn here. We, we've, we agree we're reliable when it comes to our products regardless. And data only helps us and our operators when it comes to understanding what might have happened and, uh, and trying to achieve solutions. I think the other thing when it comes to you know, data privacy and maintaining that data, so for us, same thing. When it comes to the data we've been collecting on our homes, equipped aircraft, we've been maintaining that perpetuity. Um, so for our 412s, for example, since 2005 when our kit was certified. So we've got you know, now 12 years worth of data. 
Um, we do, um, as we established our new mission link system, we went out of our way to make sure that the data is structured in such a manner that if a customer says, I don't want you to associate my data with me anymore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this, or I don't want the guy who next owns the aircraft to have my data. There may be cases where that's true to say, okay, from our perspective, we can separate the the operator from the data because those things are stored separately. We can sever that just sever that one relationship and now come back and say, I preserve history. I'm still as smart as I was, but I just don't know it was I don't know whose aircraft it is anymore. It's in a pool of other. And so it still feeds into our statistics and helps us understand how these aircraft operate. But now if if you don't want me using it, that's that is your prerogative because we think the operators own the data, and therefore we're stewards of it, and we don't want to be like Equifax. Uh, we want to make sure that we've got adequate data privacy uh, in place. So if, if you're really concerned about it, we think that's the way we maintain the value for everybody who operates this aircraft without compromising your privacy. Okay. Lee? Uh, I worked for an operator fighting fires that had a usage level at about two to three times normal for a 412. And I watched us drive uh, TBOs on certain items in the airframe based on our usage for the entire fleet. Two and a half bearings, uh, main rotor gearboxes, and a couple other components over the years. I would suggest until um, HUMS enables the operator who's maybe working offshore at a pretty light level of stress on the aircraft, with HUMS being able to avoid those kind of uh, premature TBOs generated by a outlying operation, um, we won't really fulfill what HUMS could do. Well, and, and let me speak to that for just a second, and uh, I don't know if George Castillo is in the room, um, to speak to some of the regulatory uh, challenges when it comes to changing maintenance. So um, on, on structural airworthiness components, so TBOs is one thing. We may have a little bit more flexibility there, and there's been some work that's been, that's been going on to consider how that might play in, especially in the MSG3 world on newer aircraft. But when it comes to airworthiness components, I mentioned before, uh, quoting from, uh, from the AC material on uh, fatigue tolerance, miscellaneous guidance 11 if you're interested, but it does say that we are required design the air, to design the aircraft and therefore set the maintenance to usage that is as severe as expected. So if I know firefighting is one of my worst cases, and it typically is, along with logging and, and a few other of those specialty uses, and you know maybe I'm designing today a 525 for an offshore customer, and that's who's going to be able to, to buy a new aircraft. But in its second life, its second owner, third owner, you know, it could be like a 214 is today being used in firefighting because, hey, it's a very capable aircraft and still good there. I have to ensure per the regulations that, that it's designed to be able to handle that third life or fourth, you know, whatever, fourth owner. And the, and the, uh, the stipulations to be able to make adjustments uh, is, is a little difficult. And as you heard yesterday, uh, Mr. Castillo talked about the fact that some of the changes to those regulations have gotten stalled. I'm hoping that we do see some, some movement in the near future. I think we'd all like to be there, and we've all been working for, at this point, almost 20 years trying to get there uh, with not very much success as an industry. So that's, 
that's going to be industry and the regulators working together to try to achieve those ends. And finally, we have our last panel, Tech Hurdles to Drone Market Development. It was moderated by none other than Assistant Editor S.L. Fuller. Speakers included Todd Gretz, Director of Technology Services and Unmanned Aerial Systems at BNSF Railway, Brad Hayden, President and CEO of Robotic Skies, and Jonathan Evans, Co-President of Skyward. The entirety of this panel was in Q&A format, so let's take a listen. Um, question for uh, Brad, uh, from a regulation perspective, any update on Beyond VLOS and uh, flying over people, populated areas and all that? Well, you so can we, share with us? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that's let's a, that's the subject. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Beyond Visual Line of Sight. Yeah, that, yes. that, that yeah. is a, a very big question. And um, there was, AJ and I were actually just discussing yesterday, there was some news I, I heard that uh, some of the regulations have actually, I don't know if they've been put on hiatus, you're going to have to forgive me. I, I don't know how the sausage is made once it goes into you know Congress and the formal, I, I know the formal rulemaking, rule but not all the politics beyond, behind that. Um, and, and I actually, with AJ, do we have any kind of firm timeline at all on beyond line of sight? And I think AJ, by the way, uh, heads up ASTM F38, and then we can, we can ask the panelists, but I think AJ might have some inside baseball he might be willing to share. I don't know. So I'm not sure how many of you uh, know much about what's going on in F-38 uh, ASTM. So we are actually working on a number of standards, and a couple of them are exactly what you talked about, operations over people, uh, extended uh, or beyond visual line of sight. So we have completed draft of both of those, and we have a very uh, extensive process within ASTM which where it has to go through the balloting process Everybody within the industry gets to take a look at it, you know, vote and see if they concur with what we are proposing. So it has gone through that process, I would say, at least two to three times. Uh, we have worked with the FAA uh, on those standards as well. Uh, what we are waiting for right now is that there is some concern about uh, the standards are being too general. In other words, they are not providing very specific guidelines uh, by maybe specifying some use cases uh, as examples. So we have been talking to some individuals within the society who are, who are uh, members of ASTM, where I think we may end up adding some more information as addendums. Uh, and, and really one of the uh, people I talked to last week is from Google X, where they have a specific use case maybe for Google, and they will try to utilize that as an example to see how we can come up with a proposal uh, for the FAA that if you follow these guidelines, uh, would that be acceptable uh, way to do it? So there is a lot of work going on, but unfortunately we are not quite there yet. Right. And, uh, okay, if it was up to me, I would like to release it by end of this year. Uh, but I'll also be uh, realistic here. I mean, it has to go through a lot of, lot of wickets. So, uh, I would say it, it should, if it's not released by end of the year, it, it's, it's close to uh, being released maybe early next year. Right. And then I would add on top of that with the work that Todd's doing um, to, to actually working with the FAA, because you're partnered with the FAA on your yeah, on I mean, we just, program. Yeah, we just completed a, today, they just closed out a, after three days of deliberations, a panel uh, for our phase three research, which really dictates you know, phase one uh, was 2015. We partnered with Boeing, the, their in-situ division. 
proved you could actually fly in the lower 48 safely. That was all about flying, right? Phase two, we introduced a, a series of aircraft system, which probably one of them is, is starting the actual Part 21 airworthiness certification. We're the applicant. Um, it's a series of systems. It's, it's not just the aircraft, it's ground systems, air systems, and everything that we've started uh, the certification process. And then through our direct research directly with air traffic, with aviation safety, uh, we are uh, in, the, in the third phase of expanding our research operations. So we've got about 180 odd hours of, of pure, true, pure, beyond visual line of sight. Um, and that's performed over a very short period of time, not at a test site, it's obviously over our assets, over our right of way, that's what we offer to the community is that it's a pretty defined flight path, pretty known area where we're going to be operating on. It's marked in all the charts, at least around the VFR charts. And we're building a system that's in every which way cooperative. And so working directly with the FAA, we're, we're as I said, going into phase three now, which will, will be the harder stuff. It will be the automated detection and avoid systems. It will be setting some kind of, I wouldn't say also say let's set a standard. We're not setting a standard, we're obviously not ASTM, uh, but we are providing extremely detailed amounts of information to our regulator, our research partner, on what works, what doesn't, what happens when XYZ happens. I'll give you an example. Last year we performed a, a series of tests that the outcome of that was we started receiving beyond visual line of sight certificates of authorization. The, the, the gateway to that is over a period of several days we demonstrated, well it's more like several, maybe a week and a half, we demonstrated that our aircraft systems and all of the support systems essentially could, uh, could be, uh, were able to sense both cooperative and uncooperative uh, air traffic in the sky. And we did that with a series of drones, uh, uh, general aviation aircraft, helicopters, et cetera, over about 174 random tests that were in double blind type configuration where the pilots and the support staff supporting the pilots had no idea what was going on. They were completely isolated. Uh, of course, we had radar involved, we had all these other systems, but through those 170 odd tests, we, we determined both from a human factor, from an emotional standpoint, I'm talking cameras on the pilots, watching their eyes, watching what's happening, and also the way that, that, that they interacted with the NAS, or that they perceived was the NAS. Um, we demonstrated that our pilots, uh, who are you know, at minimum instrument rated, current active instrument rated pilots, acted and, and felt as if they were on the aircraft. And that's what we've been driving towards. So phase three, a big part of phase three now, is to develop systems that we believe are uh, of, of quality that should be evaluated for rulemaking, and then to ingest anything else that the industry uh, comes with. So I, I would anticipate in first quarter, you'll see a lot of activity from the FAA and from other uh, organizations, both commercial and non-commercial, where certain systems will be put forth that would assist with operating over people, that would assist with, you know, not just the middle of nowhere line of sight like we like, but the kind of beyond visual line of sight that might support larger adoption. If I may interject, um, can we talk about sense and avoid for a minute? Because some opinions that I've heard, the technology is not ready to go, but it sounds like um, the operations that you're doing, it is. So let's talk about that. Well, and, I, and I'll, these two gentlemen will have some, some I have probably some good insight, but I would start by saying that there is some truth in, in there's, there's uh, some of the technology, in, in our humble opinion, is premature, right? It's not, it is not to the level that uh, I would say you could deem it to be certifiable and airworthy, right? But it's, it's, it's in a good enough shape to where the test sites are starting to experiment with it. We are certainly researching and refining it uh, in our various operating areas. Uh, 
with, and so that's the more advanced stuff, right? That's the on the drone. So, so for example, our main uh, aircraft right now is on a special airworthiness cert. We've got a series of them. It's experimental. It's about 110 pounds. Okay, that's one class. We've got another about 55 pound unit. Um, it's enough to put all, all the goodies we talked about on there. But the big thing is putting on some kind of forward-looking radar, some additional cameras, some additional sensors. That's why we need the additional payload. We're experimenting with that right now. And I will tell you, the algorithms and the things that you need to do to get that system to understand what's clutter, what's an aircraft, what's a bird, what's that is hard. And we're, we have probably, I'll be a lot happier with what we're doing with that in about six to eight months once we get the additional go-ahead from the FAA to expand. With that said, what we do today because we can't just get out there with the good enough stuff. What we're leveraging today is, a, again, we're leveraging ADSB uh, in areas where we think there's a high degree of risk. We're, we're leveraging actual radar. We use a lot of the Griffin radar systems in an area where we think if X, Y, and Z happens, that extra 10 seconds or 20 seconds would be enough time to give our pilots uh, some ability to do some kind of avoidance maneuver or our safety net, which not everybody has. We just put it on the track because like to say, the train is not going to notice that aircraft on the track. It's not even going to make short work of the aircraft. So poor drone team will have to buy new aircraft, but public is okay. The thing of it is though, is that when you leverage both the old and new and you put them in a series of systems, you tend to build a layered uh, set of safety systems, which will be good enough probably to get us to this next round. Cool, that was a good one. That was a good <laughs> subject. So uh, I'll turn back. <laughs> not, well, let's see if anyone else has some first. Uh, being affiliated with small air methods with 400-something aircraft, one of the challenges... I'm sorry, it was air what? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, is that, you know, just within our aviation incident reporting system, which is internal, I have seen dozens of reports already around people with having visual uh, close encounters with drones with, with our with our aircraft and these occur at as as high as 1400 feet AGL where we know they're not supposed to be and so you know it's 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 inevitable and it's not you know this is some clown you know I'm not worried about commercial operators they, they traditionally operate they understand and operate within the system it's gonna be some clown young kid and he's flying, you know, one of these things near an airport. Or we just recently had, and I think it was in California, they had to uh, suspend aerial firefighting activities on a fire because someone was flying a drone around. And all stories end the same. Drone and operator cannot be found. So one of the things that, you know, and inevitably we're going to have a mid-air collision and it is going to be a loss of life at some point. What is the status of the law enforcement activities, meaning... Having having the registration requirements because I heard there was some issue with that, and then also what is the what's going on with law enforcement with the ability to enforce people not using drones right? Because right now, if you point a laser pointer at an aircraft, you're going to prison. Yeah. What's the status on that? So I, I'm actually I can start. I'm, I'm on the uh, the advisory rulemaking committee for uh, ID and tracking. Um, I also serve on the drone advisory committee as a whole. Uh, but related to ID and tracking, we're very close to some. I, so I obviously can't share everything, but we're very close to some very powerful, very just common sense, but powerful, powerful uh, tools and suggested rules that I think will assist with, with not only identifying the aircraft, but to, to the real point, who is this irresponsible operator? Well, are they irresponsible? If, you know, and, and, and how do you deal with that? Um, we're actually ourselves as, as a company, lo and behold, we have things fall out of the sky at various rail yards all over the country. You know, again, we're in, we're in 28 states and two Canadian provinces, and, and, 
And we don't get through more than about a few weeks without somebody finding some drone wrecked in one of our yards or on the side of the right of way. Not ours, by the way, but somebody else's. And, uh, and, you know, you just think, well, somebody usually stands there to do X, Y, and Z, and thankfully they weren't there or thankful they had a hard hat on. Um, we've begun to test out some systems ourselves in, 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 over in some highly sensitive areas where we just do not want unwanted aircraft either surveilling or, or coming into contact with whatever is stored there. So um, I, I think you're going to see, you see manufacturers responding to that, but I'm, I'm a Big, big proponent, not just because I'm on the ARC, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some very substantial progress that I think will alleviate uh, most of those concerns because I believe you're right. It's not if, it's when, if we don't get a handle on these ir you know, irresponsible operators. Yeah, you know, and Skyward serves on that ARC as yeah, well. Right. And, and it, yep. speaks, it just speaks directly to the kind of system that we're advocating for in a sort of technocratic evolution of this same social contract we've all had. Like, we don't... There, so if, if that guy's up at 1,400 feet, there are two cases going on. One, he's forgivably ignorant, and he has no idea that he is threatening the lives of me and my crew and that patient. No idea. Hopefully, that's who that citizen is. Hopefully, they're forgivably ignorant to the fact that they just came on short final of my approach to OHSU and put it right near my tail rotor because they wouldn't want to threaten their lives. Like That's what I mean by the social contract, right? So in that case, we talk about software-defined operational controls, and we're having that conversation. You know who else is on that arc? DJI, most importantly. They represent 70 to 80% of the market share right now. And we're talking about software definitions of those rules and, and, and moving towards, look, that forgivably ignorant knucklehead that you call them, um, you know, shouldn't be able to do that, right? Shouldn't be able to. Let's just say it, say it that way. And it doesn't want to cause it. Now, if they are the nefarious actor, they're the other guy that's like, I want to get the really cool shot of short final at JFK with this cool new drone, and I am a knucklehead, and the cop needs to talk to me and wring my neck, then that's the kind of technology we're also talking about providing through this public-private partnership of identification and authorization. And I can just, again, we can't share everything, but I can shake out for you a metaphor that works, I think, for most people. We're defining the equivalent of a license plate for a drone, where the public, all of us, have a certain view to the fact that you have registered to the system. You've said that I participate in the system, and I am a human being that is somehow accountable through an open registration number to the rest of the public to see that I'm part of that system. And then if I'm some kind of a super user on this network, we'll say, a cop, I can find out who you are, where your address is, right, by looking at that serial number. And I can, ostensibly, if I can take an app out of my pocket now and I can hold it up to the sky, I can, one, find out if that drone is following the rule and it has a license plate on it or not. And if I'm a cop, I can see who's attached to it. And if I'm not a cop, I can see that it's an authorized thing, right? That kind of public-facing transparency about our social contract. And ultimately, we're just saying, look, you've got to be part of the system and you have to follow the common rules of the road so that the air methods pilots can say, well, below 400 feet, I gotta look out for those idiots, but above, I'm, I'm gonna count on pretty, pretty much not seeing them, I hope. It's happening, this is the short answer. It's happening, yeah. Uh, Jonathan, you, you struck my curiosity with your meeting with the uh, ICAO later. So what do you see as far as business use or use case for drones communicating, identifying, talking to each other, networking the sky, basically. 
Oh, well, so let me first, it's actually a good, seg good point to add on to the registration identification conversation about ICAO. The reason that I'm going there is to present to them. So they, they called for a global drone registry two weeks ago. And this has all been going on. We've been talking about it, right? But then they kind of placed the flag there in Montreal and said, we're, we're ready to say we'll, we'll be the internationalized version of what we just talked about, the FAA's ARC is considering, right? There's an end number in every airworthy, you know, every registered aircraft in the signatory bodies to the ICAO. Now we're saying, what's the digital end number? And, and what, how do you authenticate that to a human user that is sort of has a digital passport of some kind, right? That's basically, we're trying to, trying to get to a point that you could register these things a lot more easily, <laughs> right? And let all of the sovereigns of the world have a registration system based on internet-based technologies that are, you know, literally replacing carbon copy triplicate registration systems <laughs> around the world today for drones. So that's the conversation that we're having in Montreal. Um, and, it, and ICAO is being sort of leaning forward in a really interesting way right now to establish that. In terms of what I see for the business cases, oh, I mean, that... It, I, again, I'll refer to the internet. Um, it, the, when, when the internet first came out, people were like, oh, we're going to connect you know, computers to each other. Um, the, the people thought, you know, are, that's only going to be for programmers and network people that are interested in connecting them, right? But then it became this ubiquitous you know, information conduit that all of us use in every part of our lives. I think that that's where aerial robotic networks are going, that you'll ultimately, as we establish this infrastructure, um, and we have, again, a sort of programmatic access to the airspace, then you have the ability to program those robots as apps, right? You have the ability with RTK GPS to get them within a centimeter of accuracy to do an infrastructure inspection, not by the noble fingers of a great 107 pilot today, but by a program that's written by an algorithm that's using all the sensors of that drone, right? You have the ability to do that for a bridge inspection, like an app. You could be like, I need the bridge inspection app. You have the ability to do that for a precision agriculture app. You can say, I want this drone to be able to get me this kind of scan of this property. And we'll enable a whole generation of these kinetic apps um, on, on once we have a network conduit to the airspace. And we often liken the sort of the industrial age that we're in in, in this right now to sort of 14.4 kilobaud internet where it was clear that you could do a lot of interesting things in Web 1.0, and even Amazon put up a website that was able to do e-com. You were able to buy books in Web 1.0, and everybody kind of got that this was going to be one of the most fundamentally you know, in revolutionary things in the industrial era, and we're going to move to this e-com information age, but it didn't happen at first. It didn't happen on 14.4, and in fact, it went through a hell of a chasm that Brad was referring to for a little bit, and then it came up, and it came up on broadband. And now we, I mean, all of our, all of my commerce life is digital at this point. I, I, almost all of it, almost all of it. And that broadband moment is, I think, programmatic, network-defined access to the airspace. And, and, we'll, and we'll have that in, in the efforts that, that our companies are, are making. Yeah, to that point, <clears throat> I was lucky enough to be involved in the web very early on. And I'll tell you, when we first started, we didn't know what the use cases were going to be. You know, it was we, it was a marketing tool and a support tool. And we, to Jonathan's point, we had a vision of where it could go. But until we got that back-end automation, until we got that ubiquitous access, we we couldn't imagine where we we're going to where we would go. And if you look at where it was, and then where it is today, and you don't think we've come a long way, just go home and ask your kid what a phone book is, right? <laughs> 
my kids ask me, I'm like, you just put it in the recycling. Just don't even worry yeah. about it. Yeah. I don't bother to explain it. So, Try to know, explain this is, advertising. Yeah, this is like, there's, there are use cases in here that are going to be available to us or that are going to be implemented that we just we can't even imagine right now. When they happen, we'll probably go, oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But we can't imagine them at the moment. And I think the, the shift that we'll see will be, you know, Jonathan's exactly right. Uh, where we're, what we're doing right now and, and what Todd's doing right now, we've got that human interaction involved, right? And even with going to the level that Jonathan's talking about, you press the button and it goes up and does the bridge inspection. In the next iteration of this, or maybe the generation after that, there will be no button. It will just go do it. It will do it because a computer tells it to do it. And you'll become, you, the, the pilots will be um, abstracted to becoming network operators of networks of drones that have to meet the five or six or seven nines. And I hope that they become like Homer Simpsons in a nuclear plant that have one big red button to say no while they eat donuts. I'm sorry. Like, I set out to start this company as like a noble helicopter pilot and like realized that we were the weakest link in the whole damn thing. And, uh, and, and that, you know, hopefully we'll get the engineering around this human decision maker. Now I won't belittle him. I mean, this is, this is still the notion of the pilot in command, right? This is the sort of sacred social contract of I am responsible for the aircraft in the commons. And if it hits anything, you can, you can, you can go after my throat. Right, go after my license. So that human being becomes a somebody sitting at a, a network operations center, in my mind, and they are responsible for the operational control of those aircraft and any any of the risk mitigation. So the way we design our sort of algorithm, if you will, uh, on the Skyward platform is in a, in a stoplight protocol, just like I have in the front of a helicopter on any of the French ones, an FLI. You know, you just take all of the factors and get it down to red, yellow, or green, right? On uh, whether you can move into the next volume of airspace in front of you. That's ultimately what operational control is, right? And so you just, you take all of those factors and when you're red, you're clearly red. When you're green, you're clearly green. And when you're yellow, you go to the human and you say what to do. And that's where the dance of, I think you're talking about automation and AI, those things start to come in. You never take away this, the responsibility. You never take away the notion that the human is the judgment in the loop of all of the stacks of engineering as we evolve. We hope you stay tuned for upcoming episodes. We have a lot planned, and of course we encourage you to submit as much feedback as possible. Head to rotorandwing.com slash podcasts. Also useful would be to like us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to stay up to date with the latest news and podcast updates. 